The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. I am excited to have Bob Qureshi join me today. He's the co-owner and managing partner of iView Viewing Facilities in London. Hi, Bob. Hello. I'm delighted to be here too. I mean, I've been really looking forward to this. So thank you for having me on your show. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for making the time. I know it's, uh, I think you've referenced the latest time period as the Corona Coaster. It is the Corona Coaster. And depending what time of the day you wake up, depending what time of the day you see the news, you'll know whether your Corona Coaster is going up <laughs> or if it's coming down. The thing is that in this Corona Coaster, what I'd like everyone to kind of think about it is that even the Corona Coaster comes down and you're not feeling that great and the world isn't that super and your business isn't doing so well, the Corona Coaster does go back up again. So good things do happen. That's very true. So tell us a little bit about your business. I know you're focused on the qualitative side, but give us a little history about your business. Oh, absolutely. Back in the UK, I would say in the 60s and 70s, most uh, qualitative research would take place in a recruiter's home. There was not that kind of operation around the infrastructure to have a, a place dedicated in a city centre for a viewing facility. Over the years, the UK uh, market research industry looked across and saw what was happening in the US where specific facilities were being built. And in the 80s, we started to see the building of specific facilities in the UK. And it was in around 2010 that I looked across at the facilities that we had at the time and the way they were laid out. But they were all laid out like uh, recruiters' front rooms. <laughs> so it looked like somebody's living room. It didn't actually look like a purpose-built, <laughs> if you like, uh, place where you would have everything that a moderator would want. Uh, yes, you had a one-way mirror. You had the ability to see what was taking place and it would be recorded. But it didn't have all the other things that you might want, such as white marker boards, places to put stimulus, uh, the ability to stream. And so we thought we'd start with a game changer and also try and build this. And it sounds really strange to some of your listeners, I'm sure all on one floor. So when we searched for a venue, it was location primarily, easy to get to in the heart of London, in central London, but having a place that allowed the access for those who may have special needs, maybe need a wheelchair access, so you could come in very easily, but also had wide doors. I never thought that viewing facilities would need to have wide doors because you need to bring so many different kinds of materials in. Yeah, that's a very fine detail there, right? Now think about it. No, you've got a hospital bed to bring in, but you're putting in a dummy for a nurse to look at or a doctor or a physician. So all of these things, the attention, everything that we do, and I always say we are all project managers at heart. I mean, we really like to problem solve. Attention to detail is really trying to make sure that you've taken account of everything. And in your design, we spoke to participants, moderators, and clients. And most of all, our teams that work there, you know, what would be a nice, easy route for them to walk from one room to another? I mean, the last thing you want is a client needing some assistance over at the other end of the room. And you've got to be looking around to find out 
what's going on. So we've put in place little buzzers and little things to make that work. We even have iPads where you can control the cameras from a central place without even having to go to the room. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah, yes, that really excited me. I mean, my background was in, in a, if you like, the corporate side, the client side. And I'd always had an interest in qualitative research. I mean, you can tell even now, I don't stop talking. I mean, it's something- <laughs> Well, I love your energy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I always wanted to do. So that was a really good move to bring something along that met the needs. I'm very proud to say that for the last three years in a row, 18, 19, and 20, uh, I'm very humbled by it. iView uh, has been awarded the best viewing facility in the UK for three years in a row. And that was very difficult to get to. And we're very humbled by it because when we uh, entered in, 16 and 17 we got finalists but we never won so it's not an easy thing to do and i think it makes it more of a humbling uh, experience to have not won a couple of times to get the formula right you appreciate it more absolutely absolutely congratulations by the way that's fantastic yeah and how have you dealt with the pandemic obviously qualitative research it's primarily in person and so with the pandemic it's been hard to get people together and do research what's been the impact well, the impact's been pretty devastating, to be fair. Certainly in the first three months in our market, and I talk about the UK, it was very similar across most of Europe. Between March and June, everywhere had to pretty much shut down. And I think, by and large, most people knew there was very little else they could do. Right. And I think we all thought, I mean, I certainly thought it this way, we'll do this for three months and then we'll go back to normal. Go back, right. I didn't expect it to linger on. It's like a, an event that you think is finished, but it keeps popping its head back up again. So... We then realized that key thing to do is to take out that word competition and replace it with collaboration. Don't, don't have competitors. Talk to your other viewing facilities and then collectively agree what is the message we're going to send, who are we going to send it to, and how are we going to drive this forward? And we have to thank uh, Priscilla McKinney here of Little Bird Marketing, who really has, and I, I know a name drop there, but her was Sarah Kotler at Fieldwork Network. The two of them came up in the US and said, like, let's put a group of facilities together, and they very, very kindly invited us in the UK. And at the same time, I was doing the same in the UK. We managed to save in the UK from the municipality or the councils, as we call them here, rates relief of over a million pounds across the 10 that's amazing facilities i mean in dollars i mean maybe 1.3 million dollars and this is because the councils or the municipalities didn't quite understand our style of business and what we did they didn't see us as retail or hospitality and we, when we say to them look we've got six thousand square feet there are six meeting rooms and only five people work here <laughs> i think they eventually understood it they got it so i think what we had to do from a pandemic point of view is to stop any hemorrhaging Stop any costs that you can control. Talk to the landlord, talk to your staff, talk to your clients, do the work that you can do. And I think what pleased us very much is that when we came out of that lockdown period, the work came back very quickly. It's certainly in July, in August. You had pent up demand. Yeah, pent up demand. And it all just came back. And one of the things I was very pleased with was when we had looked at November before we had our second lockdown, we had around 70% of our normal bookings for the month of November. Of course, we had to cancel everything, and we literally have not since the 5th of November. So here we are now, two months later. We haven't done very much. But we've got all the support from all of the industry, the Market Research Society. And we talked about Jane Frost uh, a couple of days ago, that she and the uh, MRS, as well as Melanie at the Insights Association, these guys have been doing wonderful work, wonderful work promoting in person and saying, when you're ready, you know, this is what's going to be in place. We've got all the PPE equipment. We've got everything ready. 
to make sure it's a safe place for everyone. And through your collaboration, are all the facilities adopting a similar standard to be able to deal with the prevention or spread of the virus? Absolutely. Uh, One of the things is quite key that if you are a uh, client or if you are somebody who's coming to the facility, even as a participant, you want to make sure us as an industry, as a viewing facilities industry, is sending out the same message and there's no confusion from one facility to another. So if we talk to each other and say, here are the key things we are doing. We're putting in place two meter plus stickers. One of the things that I often say is that, you know, when you come to our place now, you'll be stuck up with a gun. There'll be a gun pointed at you. And you'll wonder, what's going on? What's happening? Why, why are you passing a gun? But it'll be a temperature gun. It's a temperature. <laughs> yeah. It's a temperature gun. We're going to take your temperature. And that's what all the facilities are doing. So we've got about, mm. let's say, half a dozen, six or seven key elements of protocol all facilities are using, including glass screens or perspex screens, wiping, cleaning, masks in communal areas, all of the things that you would expect so that people feel safe, comfortable, and can go about the business that we need to do. We're very fortunate at Ivy London. We, our rooms are relatively very, very large. So we can have even a focus group with everybody at two meters spacing. The room is large enough to do that. So all of the facilities are there. And I think that's one of the key changes that we've had to make. Well, I guess the news in November, when you got the 70% booking, people were coming back, you know, quickly. Do you, in your own mind, or everybody that's collaborating, have kind of an ideal timeline as to when you think in-person will resume again? I mean, I know you're not a scientist to predict what the pandemic is going to be, but just high-level thoughts as to what you guys are thinking. And I totally understand the question and appreciate it. We uh, have to think about it the way most other industries will too. I mean, the travel industry, the hospitality industry. And so what we have to look at are some of the key statistics and figures that come out. We're market researchers after all. Okay. Of course. I focus more on qual, but I can talk to my quantitative colleagues and see what they might think. But essentially, we're looking at infection rates to fall. We're looking at clearly, of course, death rates to fall. We're looking at the vaccine levels to increase. So the most vulnerable in our society are not falling prone to this wretched pandemic. And I believe that if I talk about the UK to start with, but it can be mirrored for others, we are probably not going to see any clear indication of when you may open up, certainly until the end of February. Now, when you get an idea at the end of February, My assumption is that lockdown will probably finish early March, and then we might be looking at mid to late March or early April at the very latest, provided all the other numbers and the stars align, that we can get back into our work. Because the moment we say, we're ready, you can come, lockdown is over, I believe our clients will need two to three weeks to start the process and get the ball rolling and start recruiting coming into us. So if I was to put my flag out on a particular date, I will say March the 18th. Okay. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to mark it in my calendar and get back in touch. <laughs> or mark it in the calendar. And anybody who's listening into this podcast can put their dates in and then make, make you know, maybe we could, I could do a $25 Amazon voucher. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Whoever gets the date right for this is the date we think that we're back in the uh, viewing facility. I love it. I can just imagine you, Bob, just walking into the facility for the first study and just being so happy. And I imagine that everybody in the qual side will just have such a greater appreciation for being back in business and conducting qualitative research again, like no other time. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. I'll be walking on air 
Yes. I won't need any shoes. <laughs> Obviously, I have to be careful. I don't want to try and hug everybody. I <laughs> know, that is hard. Not that I did it normally anyway, but you have to keep your distance and do all of those things. What I've heard, and in my spare time, I'm a trustee at the Surrey Cricket Foundation, which is the charitable arm of an, a, a sport in the UK called County Cricket Club. And all our events and hospitality has all been closed. But what we do know is we put some events in the calendar for key games and key hospitality events that are happening in uh, the summer and beyond. And they're already sold out because people are changing their whole attitude to from what was initially being cautious, have to stay at home. I understand we've got to do all of these things to and quite enjoying it in a way and getting used to the new routine. But the fun of it all has kind of worn off because... You can't go anywhere else. You're restricted what else you can do. So I think what people are missing is those emotional experiences. So when the facility is open, I'm sure, and we've noticed it in the summer when, after the lockdown, that moderators, participants were smiling. We had participants come in. They said, I haven't been out for three months. This is my most favorite day today. I know I'm only here to do market research, but I'm really, really happy to be here. <laughs> so That's fantastic. Here. So tell me about your passion for qualitative research? Why do you love it so much? Well, one of the things that we often know through other types of market research on the quantitative side are the percentages of people that want to do certain things or behave in a particular way. You ask a question, you get an answer, you can cross-reference it, you can cross-analyze it, so that you might know that 3% of people under the age of 17 want to do this in the area of Wisconsin. They say, you've got all of that. But what qualitative allows us to do, Sima, it allows us to understand why. Why do you want to do this? And we all know it's not the first answer they give us. It's really a number of other things that sit underneath it. It's that emotional reason for why something drives you to do something. And it's not necessarily, oh, I, I bought this car because I needed a new car and it looked nice at surface. But the drivers behind it are not necessarily the practical and functional ones. We know from a lot of studies that are done that the thought process for buying something more and more expensive is actually far less than buying a pair of jeans at you know, $99. You'll spend a lot of time over that, but you can go and buy a house for a million dollars and you'll probably have spent the same amount of time. You'll go and see it twice. You'll have a look. You'll measure it up and say, great, it all looks good. And that's because our brain can synthesize like 11 million things at the same time. And the driving is one of those things where you, have, you don't realize you're doing it, but your brain is doing 11 million things yes. all the time. And so I think for me, it always has been the, understanding what's driving that decision-making and how can we help our clients to further understand what their customers need, to understand their customers better so they can provide a better product, a better service. And sometimes people don't always know what they want. If someone had said to you in 2007, look, I'm going to make a phone and you don't press any buttons, you just wipe these screens. You'd have said, no, actually what I want is a phone with bigger buttons. That would be better. But I want it smaller, but bigger. Can you make it smaller, but bigger? You know, I want it smaller, but I want it bigger with big buttons. And it's the same old saying that we have with uh, Henry Ford. You know, if I'd asked the people what they wanted, they'd have said, can you make me a faster horse? Right? Yes, absolutely. That's a great analogy. And how does technology play into your business? Is it, we keep hearing about, you know, IDIs virtually, focus groups virtually, automated moderators. How does that play into your landscape? Quite a bit, actually. And we're so lucky that we have an alternative, that we have something else that 
if you imagine from the client's perspective, they need to understand the rationale behind a certain issue or a product or a design, that where there is an opportunity and a way to do that, we are very fortunate to be able to run online focus groups or online depth interviews where it's easy enough to pre-test beforehand all the problems that you could have, like internet dropping and making sure you do it at the right time. Because one of the problems that we didn't realize was that early on, that okay, we'll move this to online. All of the platform and everything is there, but you didn't realize that every man, woman, and their dog are all at home using internet, which means the bandwidth has suddenly dropped for everybody down the street. Normally they were all, everyone else was at work and you had a lot of bandwidth to play with. So we've had to navigate ways around to making sure that the participants have tested beforehand. My friend, David Paul at Dialsmith, this is something that he does phenomenally well, is making sure, and if you look at some of his posts and blogs, but he's had zero complaints. It's all that pre-work that you need to, to test everything is okay. But that has been, if you like, a really good alternative it hasn't suited or been able, been able to be used for every kind of project. There are some projects where you're just going to have to wait until we can get back into a room. But some of those other projects, certainly in terms of even dropping things off at somebody's doorstep you know, two meters away and say, test this coffee and then go online and tell us what you feel about it later. So there are a lot of other things. And as I said earlier on, we're all project managers. We problem solve a way around it. We're also very conscious that is there any method bias? So if we ever want to do it again, right, we need to maybe replicate that and take into account that we don't want to try and do it a different way because then that will be method bias as opposed to the results themselves. So there is a great, I guess, opportunity for us to carry on with those methods where we think they will work and then go back to the methods that we think are better for the type of study that we do. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Do you worry that people who have adopted the virtual or online method are now hooked on it and said, you know what, I don't need to go back to in-person. This is good for me. I suppose everyone is going to be worried a little bit about methodology and um, circumstance changing the way people do things. And if people, if those kind of projects stay in the online sphere, they probably would have gone over there at some point in the future anyway. Right. And all we've done, I think in a lot of the things that have happened during this pandemic, I think we've just accelerated some things that were going to happen anyway. However, if we think about what is left, there's plenty of work for everybody in the face-to-face sphere. But I'm also pretty certain the number of people that have been locked out and locked down for the last 10 months and you say to them, stay at home and do everything online for another 10 months. They're likely to say, uh, no, no. <laughs> I want a live focus group. And also us clients can all sit in the back room and get to meet our colleagues from other offices that we never normally get to see. So no, we'd like to do this face to face, please. I think you're right. I think people crave that. They like the social interaction. I mean, we, we can't ignore what are the cost implications. Is it we have to be very careful businesses at a hard time? Is it more cost effective? And I have to say, generally, the cost of doing online research is there's not every case that it's always cheaper than doing face to face. I mean, if you take the whole cost into play and everybody's time and traveling, yes, of course, face to face is more expensive. But 
most of the cost is in finding the people. And if you can find the people to take part in the cost-effective way and get them to a place, then you have pros and cons of each, really. And that's a great segue to your other business that you own. It's Provision Research, and it's a B2B data collection agency. Well, that's right, a telephone center. I mean, like most companies which have different sectors or different industry groups that they concentrate on, such as healthcare, pharmacy, consumer. I decided very early on in terms of having uh, involvement in business to have a number of areas that would all possibly complement each other. But it also means that if one sector is not doing that well, another one has an opportunity to make up for the shortfall. And we know the face-to-face has not done well at all. The telephone centre has actually been doing very well because people are at home. They're easy to contact. They want to talk to people. (laughs) Yeah, and they're not in their office, but they're in their home. They want to talk to people. They're happy. So the strike rates are incredibly good. Lives have changed. Uh, We're all looking forward to that day when the sun is shining. We are back out. We're watching sport. We're doing all the things. We can happily take our children to the park. We don't have to tell them off for playing with another kid. You know, they they do all the things we want them to do. Right. I know. Yeah, that's right. It's coming. We just have to be patient. So tell me, you are also the co-founder of Color of Research. We sometimes call it CORE, C-O-R, and the E on the end. The E was supposed to be for events. It officially started in the June of last year. Okay. The thought process actually happened in the December before Black Lives Matters movement, before we had coronavirus. We'd already started the process where a bunch of researchers, boys and girls from the market research industry in the UK said, look, we need to create a group. We need to create a place where people of different backgrounds and ethnic groups can actually see there are lots of other people that look like them and have done either well at work or are on their way to do well. So can there be a mentorship program? Can there be some events that we take place? How can we make sure that we constantly being knocking on the door of all the associations, but also getting companies to sign on and pledge that they will do the right thing that we expect them to do with all diversity, with all inclusion. And that's been um, one of the best things that's come out of uh, the pandemic for me personally, in that we've had the time to do it. That period when there's been nothing happening in the facility, I've had the time with my, my, my co-founders and I would genuinely, genuinely say that uh, all of them probably put a bit more effort into it and work than I have, largely because we've looked at all the areas who's got skill and experience and uh, Natalie Samuel from Ipsos, she has done all the work on the mentorship program. I won't mention them all, but Sia Najumi, she has done all the marketing work and Thea, Thea Francis has led it and, and also uh, Melissa Gonzalez has too. They've all been doing incredibly well in their own areas and uh, we're so proud by it all. I mean, I think the latest news that we had today is the, the MRS Market Research Society, and we work very closely with them and the Insights Association, have said, look, we're not going to use this word BAME anymore because you've, you've said to us it, it doesn't hold resonance. It was designed by not the people for whom it referred to. So how about we just say, if we say black, we say brown, we, whatever ethnicity we need to use. We use that rather than just using a generic in the hope as a catch-all. It's fantastic. So we expect lots more to happen. We are very fortunate. Companies like Savanta, Lucid, Zappi, Cantar have all helped us. Other associations like you know the wonderful Kristen Luck at uh, Wire Women in Research, they've also said, look, anything we can do to help you or a reciprocal arrangement, let's try and do that. But that's one good thing that's come out of this kind of pandemic period that we've got that up running and it's taken its own shape and legs and just moving forward. That's fantastic. And is the mission to bring awareness to the industry about 
the diversity or the lack of diversity within our industry? Like, what's your main mission? I would like to see every employer, if you look across their profile of staff, it mirrors the cities that they work in, that they operate. I love that. That is our goal. So you can look across your office and you say, I'm sat here in central London and I can see 40% of my colleagues represent black, Asian, minority, ethnic, all the people that we want them to represent, that represent our region. But at the same time, if you're sitting in an office in a city where the uh, ethnic population is less than 1%, we wouldn't expect you to have 40% people from a different background. So you want to make sure if they're Latino or Mexican, all of those, and that is a core goal for us, uh, to make sure that there is no bias in the way that people are recruited, you know, just because of someone's, the spelling of someone's name, you've already got a preconception of what you think this person's going to be. And we need to dismiss all of that so that we find a way that you almost have anonymized job bios or CVs. So you, all you see is the profession, what this person has done, and, you know, they they're male or female, of course, now you then do that anyway, or what year they were born, but you don't have anything else. And they say, okay, these are the skill sets we're looking for. Now we'll just bring, bring them in and take it forward. So uh, educating. So we have already, for example, carried out a couple of presentations with some companies who've had 70 to 100 staff sit in and said, look, these are the things you probably didn't think about. We're actually going through your head. And here's, here's, we like, here's how we would like you to think. And then we've had stories told by mentees and mentors about their experiences. Nothing tells you more than a 23-year-old saying, I've been working in research and these are the things I've come across, but I'm absolutely certain that no one around me knows I've ever, I never said anything. And it's not necessarily something that is so visibly obvious. It can be a look, it can be a response or a number of words that are just kind of dismissed. So we want to help keep that top of mind. Anything that helps the cause across all the groups, we'll keep doing that. I give those young people so much credit to speak out of their experiences because for me, I've kind of put my head down and just said, I got to keep going. It can't slow me down. And there's no point in talking about it. Nothing's ever going to happen. It's a different era now. And there's a voice and there's advocacy around it. But even now for me, it's like going back and finding those words are hard and bringing them to the forefront. I was actually talking to a couple of my colleagues about it, and it's like an awakening of some really old feelings. There are indeed. I had the, one of our colleagues in our group, this individual had a uh, talk and tell with a wider group. And this person said that within that wider group, they actually started crying. And it was at that point that everyone in the company realized how serious this issue was. And these are experiences this person had had about 14 years ago, and they've been in research for 15 years, but it's still harbored in their head and how they reacted to people. So they, most of the time, they were already trying to put other people at ease <laughs> before going any further with them. You know? So we are, as you very rightly say, young people new to our industry uh, have a voice and us older guard will help them push that voice in. And my, the best thing that can happen for me in this group in about a year's time or two years time, I say, Bob, we don't need you anymore. We've got all everybody we need. And I'm really looking forward to that. That's fantastic. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed meeting you and visiting with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now more than ever, there's nothing like in-person research to deliver the voice and the views of the consumer. Face-to-Face -face delivers on empathy, captures nuanced body language, and creates personal connections that can be explored further. 
all focus group facilities are committed to safe and socially distanced protocols to keep our teams, our clients, and our participants safe. People are engaged and excited to share new emotions, new buying patterns, and new ways that they're seeing the world. Clients need this deep insight to make the best possible decisions at this critical time. We're here, we're focused, and we're ready. For in-person research, it's time to embrace the research space. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.